On today's episode of The Data Trek, we have Raghu Dara. He's the head of data science over at Keep Trucking in San Francisco. Today, we're going to talk about his entrepreneurship, the future of data science, hiring and what he looks for, and his management style. Enjoy the show. Raghu, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, Would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, Rush. Uh, Thanks for having me. So as you mentioned, I currently head data science at Keep Trucking, which is a transportation compliance company based in San Francisco. Before that, I'd bounced around a few startups in different areas from real estate analytics to medical device manufacturing. And my previous employment was at a startup that I founded out of my college dorm room. It was a venture in the digital asset space and sort of rode that wave until uh, it uh, crested, shall we say. and. After that, joined Keep Trucking uh, about a year and a half ago. My background is in computer science. I graduated from Harvard with a degree in that. Awesome. Yeah, it's always interesting. I feel like that uh, Mark Zuckerberg dream of uh, starting a a company in your dorm room, you obviously went through that process. And and I know there's a lot of people that are uh, still in school and or in their cubicle or now at home dreaming of having their own company one day. So I think that'd be really something interesting for us to touch on. So maybe take us through that process. I think people with Shark Tank and and different shows that kind of walk through entrepreneurs uh, getting to investors and stuff like that. So I'd be really curious to hear kind of your take on kind of that experience, how it came about and kind of uh, what you did in that situation. Yeah, definitely. Certainly wasn't as exciting, perhaps, as Zuckerberg's dorm room <laughs> story, but uh, it was something. So I guess as a bit of background, I'd been very interested in, in day trading uh, equities for a while. And when crypto blew up, there was an interesting opportunity to trade. And obviously, many people did very well. Many more did perhaps quite poorly. And what we realized was that most people were just going off of you know what their uncle told them or what their friend told them about a certain crypto asset. There wasn't the kind of fundamentals-based approach that you would find or hope to find in the equities market. And so the company that I started, Boltzmann, um, was an attempt to offer these fundamentals for uh, your average retail trader all the way up to you know high-frequency like hedge fund type strategies. And so the premise of the company was collecting data from all of these different blockchains, producing tradable metrics in-house, and then making them available to uh, these retail traders or high-frequency traders. So that was the, the original idea. Okay. So I'm curious. So you know, you sit there. I'm sure everybody has ideas. I watched a masterclass with Sarah Blakely, and she was like, look, I promise everybody has had one at least million-dollar idea in their life, but then it doesn't go anywhere. So you have this idea. Do you really kind of dig into it to see if it has any kind of teeth behind it or kind of what was your initial like, hey, I think this could be something? What was that kind of process for you? It was a tricky one in crypto because it was just in a hyperinflationary bubble. And so anyone you talk to would tell you that it was a good idea, even if it wasn't. <laughs> and looking back, it probably really wasn't. But I think that's one of the things that, you know, I, I agree with that statement that most people probably do have these ideas, especially as you spend time in a particular industry and learn the ins and outs and, and figure out what works and what doesn't. Market validation is, is very key. And I think we didn't do enough of that. That was one of the, uh, the many mistakes along the way. So definitely for those out there 
looking to do venture spend probably more time on market validation than MVP development in the first several months. Would you kind of go into those markets, I guess, or depending on kind of what your product or service could be, how would you suggest people kind of dive into going into those markets? It works two ways. So if you have exposure to that industry through your work or direct connections, and that's a good way to gain exposure. But what also works quite well is if you approach people just cold via LinkedIn or email, but not try to sell them anything because they get a bunch of those a day, myself included. Yeah. And instead focus on you know making it a learning experience like, hey, I'm just starting out. I have this idea. Would it be cool if we could chat about it for 30 minutes? And the responses there are quite good. So I think just you know talking to the leading players in that industry and setting time with them, you know, trying a couple people at each company, it's bound to uh, turn up some results. That makes sense. And that's interesting. I guess one thing that is interesting to me, I guess, or the exciting part is like when you do get in front of an investor, you know, you've done that due diligence, you have the idea, that aha moment, you know, hopefully your friends don't tell you to, you know, shelve it. And so you keep going forward. Now that next step, right? So you've done that. What do you do? Do you cold outreach to get, you know, investors or what was your process in? taking the idea to an investor's door. I'm curious kind of what you did. It was a mix, I would say. So there was certainly a healthy amount of cold outbound to these investor shops. That being said, the number of investors willing to get into crypto was quite small, relatively speaking. So the, the sample size and the pool rather was reasonable. So you could hope to reach most of them. But once we started getting, you know, into the thousands of monthly active users, we started seeing more of an inbound. Like there were a few groups, not many to be honest, but a few groups that did reach out and say, hey, we noticed this, like let's talk, which is always a really exciting email to get. Yeah, any, any inbound, anybody that does any cold outreach, if you get somebody that reaches out to you, uh, you're always quite excited. I guess in your outreach, were you putting those stats? I know there's people out there that they really have never done cold outreach and maybe they do have a startup or a company that they're trying to get off the ground. Like, What did you kind of craft or did you see anything in the emails and the outreach that you did that kind of resonated with people a little bit more than others? We had a few figures in the emails, but mostly it was like links to really digestible demos, like you know, 30 second to two minute YouTube snippets explaining what the product did. And usually that was good. The other thing is, I would advise people to have something to see on a website. I know the fashion is to have like the one page, you know, complete stealth, but I think people will resonate a little bit better if you give a few details and maybe even a picture of what it is that you're you're making. Unless of course it's like completely under wraps and then Sure, yeah. No, I think that Kickstarter kind of like uh, approach, it sounds like you kind of embed something that catches the eye and kind of gives somebody a little bit more meet to what you're doing. Uh, sounds like a good way to kind of get some uh, interest in, in your product or service. Yeah, you need a really quick way of packaging it because there's just so much inbound and, and the signal to noise ratio is so low that you want to be sure that you know you put your foot, best foot forward and whatever content you're putting out there, be it your subject line or the content, it should be short and uh, to the point. You got to grab somebody's attention. Yep. All right. So then I guess what most people see is kind of the shark tank, right? The pitch, you go in there and you're like, some people are really bad. Some people are very nervous. Some people are awesome. And those guys get peppered by the sharks, right? It seems like it's a very high intense, you're sweating. You're just like, man, get me out of here type of situation. So I'm curious for you, what did you do in preparing for the first pitch 
and kind of what were your emotions like? And, and did you practice a lot with friends, family? And then kind of what did you take from that? And what did you do kind of moving forward? Yeah, the first few were quite nerve-wracking for myself and my co-founder. We definitely practiced a lot, just you know, talking at walls, having a I wouldn't recommend people have a script because that almost makes you more nervous because now you're worried about if you're deviating from that. So just having talking points is good. And yeah, what we found that the first few were nervous and you know, we had to answer questions on the fly. And so that was interesting. But after that, and we did a tragic number of pitches, I'd say <laughs> something like 80, because uh, getting investment was pretty hard. Sure. So by the end, it was just like, all right, bring it on. You know, it's just <laughs> almost just, this is just another day, another pitch sort of deal. So it gets a lot easier. Yeah, I'm sure. Practice. I guess the notion that a lot of the sharks always say is know your numbers or investors will say, was that something that obviously in the initial stages, it might be a lot of, uh, you know, estimations or, you know, theoretical numbers and, and what you're hoping to achieve. But was that something that you saw kind of frequently come up in your pitches or the meetings you had? Yeah, numbers are very important. And it's usually get, best to get them out up front because if you spend a lot of time talking about the product before you explain you know, how it's been going, like it's good to give an intro, but then the numbers will keep people interested because for you, it's very important. But for them, it's just you know, another pitch. They might have five more the same day. And I should preface this all with I'm hardly an expert at pitching or entrepreneurship. So uh... no worries. But you know what? It, it's a matter of like, you've done it and there's a lot of people that haven't done it. And you know, it's knowing kind of some tidbits to help along the way. So you can learn from everybody and anybody. So I think uh, great things we're discussing. I think maybe it would be interesting to now to make a shift is you get into keep trucking, you know, the startup world got a backseat for now. I guess there's a lot of stuff happening in the data world, data science, AI, machine learning. I guess from your overall assessment right now, where do you see things moving? Do you see kind of automation really coming in and taking over a lot of people's roles and kind of you know responsibilities that they currently have? Or kind of what's your overall vision on, on what's going to happen? That's a really good question. I think in general, with regards to these data-centric roles, and again, I've only been in one for the last like year and a half, but there is an increasing tide of automation, I believe, when it comes to more of the basic transforms and reporting type roles that you might find at organizations. There's a number of companies doing, like, I wouldn't say auto ML, but they're sort of approaching that point where these kinds of very standard reports, uh, you know, finding what's working and what isn't, you know, summative business intelligence, those kinds of things I could see as becoming more automated. And I think what the implication is, is for the data scientists that want to stay you know, relevant uh, and in demand, you may want to move up market, should we say, in terms of the math barriers. Buying yourself technical immunity is, is probably the best thing you can do if this is a field that, like me, you love and, and want to stay in. Sure. Then, you know, just making sure that, you know, there's that ability to tackle the harder problems and solve the bigger business questions, the ones that have much less structure and definition. Like it's not just SQL queries to get the answer. It's you know being creative and inventive with architectures if you're doing deep learning or model types if you're doing machine learning. And of course, those things are becoming commoditized at the lower levels as well. So you really have to you know, sort of up the ante in terms of math chops to stay on the edge. That would be my suggestion. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess in that sense, are you seeing the business 
application and I guess solving the business problems in the world of data science? Do you think technical chops, I think, will always be there? But that component seems like it's going to be a little bit harder for you know, AI to kind of infiltrate or it'll take longer. What do you see from you know, data scientists tackling that side of the house? I think that's exactly right, is that the heavier lifting stuff will be harder for AI to take on. It's, yeah, of course, it's still a question of when, not if. But at the same time, if you do sort of you know, get further along the skill tree, so to speak, then you do put yourself in a position where you are making the systems involved in the higher order of automation abstractions, as opposed to being on the other side and being automated. But again, that will buy you some time. And to be clear, there's no like existential threat to data science at an organization. I think it's still one of the most essential roles as companies have now realized that, hey, in order to actually maintain a quantifiable differentiating edge, I really do need to maintain a large quantity of data from my day-to-day interactions as a company. And so people that can extract value and translate that into further growth for the company are going to remain essential for a long time. And it's just more a sense of what kinds of skills they need to be successful in that position. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I know you touched on the skill tree. In your opinion, what does that tree and the branches look like for people either that are you know in the space or graduating, coming in? How do you see that? Yeah, so I think the entry-level libraries, so just to give like a Python framing, just because it's the one I know the best. So you, know, you have your sort of sklearn type stuff where you're just importing standard libraries, you know, linear regressions, random forests, et cetera. And you're, you're able to like, you know, train and fit those and use them. And that will solve, I think, you know, actually a, a majority of business use cases, the easy ones. But those are, again, the highest risk of automation just because of how straightforward it is to use and apply them. And then sort of higher up, you have more like tuning. So you have like hyperparameter tuned versions of these models. Uh, maybe you ensemble them, maybe do something fancier there. And that will often require more advanced exposure to modeling techniques and knowing various trade-offs and things like that. And then you get into the realm of deep learning, which again, there's a tier like Keras where you just import a neural net and you have it run and that might solve most of your problems. But if you want to work at a cutting edge AI company where, you, where the problems are very unstructured and you know, take self-driving for an example, right? Something off of sklearn or, or Keras is not going to, you know, do it for you. You're going to really need to make this like crazy edge optimized custom architecture. And for that, you probably do need quite a bit of math chops and stuff to get to. And I think that's the big barrier for people, which uh, you know, I encourage all my friends and stuff who are interested in getting into the field that this is a part you have to break. Because typically people get to like the multivariable calculus or the linear algebra required for this stuff. And they're like, ah, this is uh, you know, not my cup of tea. And then they sort of take a step back. But I would encourage those that really want to um, take it to the next level, if this is a really a field that they love and enjoy, to make that investment in learning those things because the payoffs will be good. Yeah, I think it sounds like you know you get to that barrier sometimes and you got to push through it. I guess the people that can learn the technical aspects of things, the application, I guess, sometimes you hear from data scientists that they're at an org that they're just not as cutting edge as some other places, but they want to get to that next job that does have that aspect. Yet when they interview, they ask them questions that they can't really kind of apply because they haven't had that exposure experience. So for people like that in those situations where that's their goal, what do you have for suggestions? Is there side projects? What can they do to showcase 
that that's something that they have as a skill, even though the company that they're currently at might not have that uh, exposure? Yeah, I think it's never been easier, actually, to demonstrate competency in things outside of your main career role, would like what that would entail. So obviously, you can do, as you mentioned, side projects. I think that's a really good way of learning how to actually apply these things in, in a production or semi-production setting. Putting these things on your GitHub, writing you know Medium articles about them. This is like really good way to put it out there that, hey, I'm an actively engaged member of you know the data science community. And while my current job might not really show that, this is something I'm really passionate about. And that often enough in the eyes of an employer will be just as good as having a job that you know, uses those skills day to day. But the other trap that I would you know, warn data scientists about, and this is true at most companies, including uh, the one I'm at, which is that you can't expect that the day to day will be data science. That's sort of the end, and there's quite a bit of means to get there. And what that typically involves is a bunch of traditionally, you know, unglorious stuff like, uh, you know, data scraping, cleaning, ETL, data pipelining, that kind of stuff. And if you're not comfortable with that expectation, then especially in smaller companies, you're probably not going to be too satisfied because you're going to be spending quite a bit of time on those aspects as well, not just, you know, modeling day in, day out. but you know, for someone like me who prefers early stage and smaller companies, it's really exciting because you get to flex a lot of different muscles at the same time. Yeah, I read a, a survey that said I think about 45% of data scientists' time is spent on data cleansing. Yeah. So it makes sense that you, you got to be comfortable and know what you're getting into to get to the fun stuff. So I guess when you are hiring, I'm curious what kind of key things are you looking for? And maybe the first line of defense is a resume. What are you looking for when you're looking at a resume? And I'm actually curious, like how long do you typically spend kind of glancing at one? Yeah, so I spend, yeah, probably around a minute. That's more than a lot of recruiters and, and other people out there. <laughs> I have the privilege of having seen those resumes after our recruiters go through them. Sure. So generally they're of you know, quality that we would consider you know, bringing to the team. Yeah, the main things that I've been looking for, obviously, education is important, but not the primary thing. You could have studied any field, but you know, I typically look for someone who has at least, if not a technical background from school, at least taken positions that you know flex that muscle. Like if they did psychology or sociology or economics or something, but then worked in tech-related fields at companies even involved in those things or tech-related roles. That's more than sufficient because it shows that they're sort of interested in, in that area. But the other key thing is we look for, and, and this is hard to do from a resume. This is something we more do during our onsite, is a term I'd call like scrappiness. It's basically, can you be resourceful on the spot? And this is especially important for someone like Keep Trucking, who, you know, while it is a unicorn, it's not like, you know, a massive multinational corporation, or maybe it could be called that because we have offices around the world. But in any case, it doesn't have you know, the resources needed to have these very silo teams like, okay, this is your data scientist. This is your role of just you know, handling the modeling side and someone will take care of the data input, data output. So we ask questions during the interview and also look for on the resume, things that show that they have experience bringing things into production or sort of starting or leading a project and that sort of stuff. Those are really you know, green flags for us because it's like, okay, this person can take 
initiative. They're not expecting like a pure modeling type role. They can do some of the uh, dirty work. Rustle in the mud is a phrase I like to use. That's a good one. And I think it's good for people to note when they are constructing their resume, it's not just about the end result always. Definitely, like you mentioned, depending on the organization you're applying to, they might want to really see that you can get your hands dirty. And that's something that you've done on a frequent basis. You know, I think to your point, as you get bigger and bigger companies, they have definitely more of that kind of one thing, be an expert. We just need you to do this. So I think that's a good tip for people out there that are, uh, you know, in the resume review stage or trying to, you know, up their resumes. When you get past that, you're going to kind of do a potential phone interview with someone in that stage of the interview process. What are you looking for? And I guess maybe what are some things that you've seen from people that you're like, oh, man, please don't ever do that again. Anything you can share? Oh, yeah, plenty. <laughs> Probably an equal mix of both, actually. In terms of what we like to see, so when they mention that they have experience working with certain you know, statistical models or, or deep learning frameworks and stuff, we tend to dig into that a little bit and just ask, you know, what models did you consider alongside this? Why did you pick this one? What were the reasons for choosing this or that? How did you evaluate it? How did you tune it? And seeing how they can explain their decision-making process in the life cycle of a model is very important. It's very rare that you get the model right the first time. I've scrapped thousands of lines of code for models that you know I thought were great when, when they're in your head and on, on the whiteboard, but then when you put them you know, the pedal to the metal, it, it eats it. So you have to quickly iterate. So people who have that mindset of, okay, that didn't work. Now, what do we do to get it to that next notch of improvement? So that's what we look for. And that also answers the second question, because people who can't explain that properly or don't have confidence when talking about you know, a specific model, like you say, okay, you used a random forest. Like, why? Did you consider an SVM? Did you consider this or that? And if they can't actually explain the decision-making process, oh, we did it for these reasons, then you know that, okay, this person might not have the grasp on the concepts that you would want. And they're just sort of plugging in these sort of cookie-cutter libraries and hoping for the best. So that's what we like to look for. And in general, just confidence when explaining the material is also really nice. Do you feel like there's a vulnerability aspect that sometimes people are afraid of when they are explaining something? Because maybe, you know, it's why did you choose this? But they know at the end, the model didn't get to production or it didn't work out the way they wanted to. So they're maybe a little bit apprehensive to explain why they chose XYZ. I'm curious if that's less important, the end result, than actually the thought process of why they made the decisions they made. Oh, the end result doesn't really matter for us. I think the main thing is more along the lines of when you make a decision, are you thinking critically about you know the factors that are involved in making that decision? Like, we're going to use this model architecture because of this. It makes sense on paper. And you know we don't expect it to work perfectly or even at all when you actually put it into production. So it is less important that it worked or it ended up actually going into the market or even becoming productized. But just the fact that they were creative enough to say, hey, this might work because XYZ, they're able to defend their points. And then they, you know, once it didn't work, perhaps they were, you know, wise enough to pull it out and say, okay, we need to try something new. Gotcha. So it sounds like that leads to, you know, getting the right team members in, which then kind of leads us to you in your management style. I know uh, Keep Trucking, I think it was uh, one of the best places to work back in 2019. So Obviously, the culture of the company is there. And then for your specific team, how do you maintain that culture, part of the company culture, 
and kind of what's your overall uh, kind of leadership style? Yeah. So as you mentioned, that was one of the, the primary reasons why I joined the company. There was a, a very good amount of positive energy and very clear vision from leadership, which is one of the things I think people should look for the most when uh, deciding where to go. That's not to say there weren't missteps. There always are. But uh, overall, as long as you, you know, keep moving generally in the right direction, it's good news. As far as my personal management style goes, I mean, I'm definitely not the person you should ask. You should talk to the, uh, the reports. Uh, but I would like to think that I'm more hands-off. Um, I think people thrive under autonomy when they're able to decide their timelines for finishing projects and figure out the stages for doing so. And I think that the manager's role is really to unblock them when it comes to either relationships with external stakeholders or very specific technical issues that they just need, you know, someone to pair program with them at 11 p.m. because it just has to be done. You know, I've done that many times. Sure. I think that's the primary role. And when you get into things like micromanagement or like giving schedules like, all right, this is done Wednesday, now this is Friday, it's just not healthy, I think, in the long run. Especially because people are stressed enough in the current climate with all. Yeah, it sounds like you're very supportive to empowering your team and kind of letting them do what they need to do, and then being there as a support, however they need. That is what I aspire to be. Hopefully, I'm doing that. Don't worry, I'll I'll do a survey afterwards and and let you know. Maybe I won't let you know. Um, Okay, anonymous. (laughs) I'll see the results. Exactly, and I guess maybe that token. How do you foster? that type of open dialogue with your team? Are you looking for people to come to you, you know, if they see something that, you know, they could be done differently or improved? I know a lot of people as, you know, individual contributors have good ideas or just thoughts they want to share. And sometimes they kind of keep it to themselves. What do you try to do to give people that open door policy? That's a very good point. I think it's one that, you know, every manager should try to really imbue is maintaining that, that open door policy. One way to potentially foster it, which is the way I like to do, is like keep the conversations and the asks bidirectional. So instead of just saying, okay, this is what has to be done, or just saying, you know, reach out to me if you have technical issues and I'll sort of help unblock you, you as a manager do the reverse in many occasions. So you go to a report and say, hey, I'm stuck here. Can I get some help? Or I have this idea. What do you think? And so, you know, getting those opinions. First of all, this is not some sort of contrived exercise. It's more of like a push for diverse thoughts because I find that the ICs probably generally have better ideas than upper management. And really, it's middle management's role to propagate those through. And so maintaining that bidirectional communication so gives the, the reports the confidence that, hey, you know, I can ask questions, I can push my own ideas forward. And then that's where you know, products that we're, you know, we're pushing out to production have come from is in that process. So it's really exciting to see that, at least so far, it seems to be working. That's an interesting uh, idea to kind of seek out their opinions to allow them to feel more comfortable to share their own in the future. As I said, it's an enabler, but it's also probably the best source of good ideas because the people closest to the problem generally are the most aware about how to fix it. Like You can get this high-level guidance from above, but in general, you know your component the best. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess if you could go back so far, I know your career is still on the more young side, but as to date, is there anything if you could go back and maybe have a redo or kind of do differently? Is there anything at this point you think uh, you might want another crack at? How much time do we have? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's a loaded question. Many. I mean, hindsight is, is always twenty twenty. but sure. in addition to some recently poor day trades, I think the other things I would reconsider was my first uh, venture that I did out of college, uh, Boltzmann. While it was instrumental in building me a VC network and sort of a presence in the venture space that you know, I'm hopefully going to tap into uh, when I go on to inevitably start the next venture, I think I definitely rushed the decision to enter sort of headfirst without doing sufficient market validation. That was spurned by just getting early investment. And so it seems like the investor validated the idea. And so you're like, you know, what could go wrong? People put you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars behind it. But you need the market to back your idea. Like You need the customers to back your idea, not the investors. And so I think not doing sufficient market validation there was a very big mistake. And it ended up just dooming the company in the long run. I mean, obviously, the crypto slide to junk bond status didn't help. But um, that was definitely a, a giant misstep. Gotcha. Sometimes you get some false positives with other people's confidence and it kind of takes you away from digging into your idea and kind of really tossing it around to make sure that it holds its uh, validity. Right. Yeah. You need the people who are ultimately going to be the consumers and actually put down continued money for the product to do the validation. Again, as I was saying earlier, you need to invest very heavily. It's, it's not fun work, like making spreadsheets and reaching out to like 50 people on LinkedIn only for two people to respond and then one person to never respond again to that follow-up. But that's just how the cookie crumbles if you're just getting started. So you got to power through it. Welcome to the world of sales. <laughs> and also sometimes looking for a job. So for anybody out there that's on the hunt, it's a marathon. So take your time, do your due diligence and be persistent. So 100%. Awesome. Hey, Raghu, uh, really appreciate you being on. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things for people out there to uh, learn from. So always a pleasure. And um, yeah, appreciate your time. Of course. Uh, thanks for having me. This was fun. Awesome. Cheers, mate. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. 